Many years ago, I was walking through Sears, and I happened to pass by a section marked clearance. And my eyes were caught by the fact that here was a power mower on sale, and the price tag said that this power mower was being sold for $25. I could barely believe it. Now, I wasn't in the market for a power mower, but at 25 bucks, I would have taken it. That mower new sold for $200, and it was a brand new mower. So I stood there and looked at that, and I thought, something's got to be wrong. They can't really be affording to sell this nice new mower at a clearance price of 25 bucks. And the longer I stood there and looked, then I realized something else. All of the clearance items had a certain style of price tag, and this price tag was different. It didn't match. And so I started to tell myself, you know, there's something wrong here. This cannot be right. But wouldn't it be great to get a power mower for 25 bucks? So I stood there and rationalized. Now, this was a long time ago. This was in the days before barcodes and computerized checkouts. This was in the day when you went up to a check stand and the cashier manually rang up whatever was on the price tag. And so I said to myself, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get a clerk who's not very astute, they just might ring this up and I might get a heck of a deal. As I'm sitting there thinking about all this, I look over at the check stand and I see a very young teenage boy and he is clearly overwhelmed dealing with a long line of impatient customers, frantically ringing up purchases and at that moment my confidence increased <laughs> that I could pull this off. But I knew in my heart of hearts that that just couldn't be the right price. So I was wrestling with myself, and the Holy Spirit was nudging me, saying, Bruce, Bruce, don't do it. So I walked away. I got about 20 yards, 20 yards down the aisle, and I turned around and I went back. <laughs> And I stood there and wrestled with myself, and then I walked away, and I went back, and I walked away. I, I, I did this for like 15 minutes as I wrestled with myself because I just thought, I really want to get a mower for 25 bucks. You know what that's like, don't you? You know what that's like to wrestle with your conscience when the Holy Spirit is saying, do the right thing, be honest, but we're tempted to do something that we're pretty confident is deceitful. Well, then a manager happened to pass by, and I grabbed him and said, hey, is this the right price? And he said, oh, absolutely not. It's supposed to be 25% off, not $25. I will change that price tag right away, and thank you so much for telling me. <laughs> and then I felt kind of guilty for getting a compliment that I barely deserved. The Holy Spirit whispers to us, to help us understand the importance of honesty versus deceit. That when we're in those tugs of war between what God wants and what our sinful tendency wants, the Spirit's there to guide us. And I'm so thankful in that moment that I listened to the Spirit. That, that experience was a defining moment in my life because it reminded me of the importance of listening that small, still voice of the Spirit. It reminded me that if I want to be a person of honest, Christ-like character, 
that I need to listen to the Spirit rather than the tempting voice of deceit. And we're going to get a vivid example of how not to do this in our Bible passage today. We're going to encounter a couple of believers who do not listen to the Spirit. Tragically, they are not people of character. So instead of choosing the path of truth, they choose the path of deceit, and they do so with deadly results. And so I'd like us to listen as Brad now reads to us from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thank you, Brad. That is an incredible, incredible story. It's not an easy passage to hear. It's not an easy passage to read. It's not an easy passage to understand. It's one of those very uncomfortable Bible stories that we might prefer to avoid. And yet we can't back away from the hard parts of Scripture. God's given them to us for a purpose, so we need to dig in and discover what it is that God wants us to learn. And in this case, we learn some powerful things about deception. And at the beginning, we see where the plan to deceive takes root. And it begins with a husband and wife who want to appear more generous than they actually are. Ananias and Sapphira are deceitfully grasping for virtue. Let's take a look. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. I'm going to skip the part in white for a moment and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, that part that I've highlighted in yellow, that's something that actually was happening with a fair amount of regularity in the church at that time. You see, what happens is this. Back in that day, there was no social safety net like we have today. There wasn't 
Social Security. There wasn't food stamps. There wasn't support for people in need. And so poor people who needed help had to get that help directly from others. And therefore, in the church, men and women of means were selling significant assets. They were selling homes, they were selling parcels of land, and they were doing that as an act of benevolence. And after the sale, they would take that cash and they would bring it to the apostles and lay it at their feet. The apostles then would distribute those funds to people in the church who were living on the margins. What's incredible is that the people doing this were giving the entire proceeds from these sales to the church. They weren't just giving a portion, they were giving the whole thing. So these gifts were incredibly generous and even sacrificial. However, it's important to understand that the church wasn't asking anyone to do this. There was no requirement to do this. The handful of people who did this were acting spontaneously and they were not expecting others to do the same. They were just choosing to do that on their own with the resources God had given them as a way to bless those less fortunate. Now, now there's something really interesting also that's going on. There's kind of an interesting wrinkle in the story because the practice of giving at that time was very different than it is today. The giving was done publicly. They brought this money in front of the church and they laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, it means everyone could see these incredible acts of sacrifice. And, and the idea was that other people in the church would be encouraged. That when someone sells a parcel or a home and they bring all that money in and they give it away, it's like, wow, here's a brother or sister in Christ who really takes their faith seriously and they want to give generously and sacrificially to bless those in our church family who are in need. That's the goal, that this would be encouraging. But over time, the church stopped giving publicly and giving became more private. And I find myself wondering if this story here in Acts chapter 5 might have influenced that decision. And that's because some people, in particular Ananias and Sapphira, don't react well to what they see. They watch what's happening, and they want the acclaim of being sacrificial givers without actually being sacrificial givers. They want to impress people by building a false public image of themselves. And the reason that they want to do that is they're not people of character. This husband and wife are grasping for status. They're grasping for the illusion of virtue. And that's never a good thing. So this couple tragically sets out to lie to the church. Now sometimes in a marriage, one spouse may rope the other spouse into doing something wrong. In this case, though, while Ananias apparently takes the lead, Sapphira is fully on board. They both are conniving to deceive. And we see that in the way that they each respond when they're confronted by the Apostle Peter. Let's take a look. 
And with his wife's knowledge, so this is the part about Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. So that's what's in Ananias' heart. And then later on, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. They're both in on it. Now, as we understood when Brad read, those two parts of the story happen at different times. But it becomes clear that this husband and wife are fully invested in the lie. Both of them are willing to deceive the church about the sale price of the land. And what's really important for us to understand is that the issue here really has nothing to do with money. The amount of the gift is irrelevant. The percentage of the gift in relationship to the purchase price is irrelevant. When Brad was reading the passage earlier, did you notice what Peter said in verse 4? He affirmed that the property belonged to them and they were free to do with it whatever they wanted. No one forced them to sell it. Once they sold it, there was no requirement that they give any part of that sale price to the church. They could have kept all the money for themselves. And once they decided to make a financial gift, they could have given as much or as little as they wanted. They were under no obligation of any kind. And so the issue here isn't the gift, it's the attitude behind the gift, and the attitude is deceit. Deceit that isn't accidental, it's intentional. That's why in verse 4, Peter says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? This is not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Their intent to deceive is planned and considered and thought out. And they are conniving with the full knowledge that what they're doing is wrong because they refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit. In fact, because of their conniving, they actively sin against the Holy Spirit. And Peter makes that clear when he confronts them. Let's take a look. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Ooh, ouch. But Peter said to her, that's Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Now, there's some things that are implied in the text that I think we need to understand. If you were a member of the early church, you were a baptized believer. And as a baptized believer, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Spirit lived within you as a counselor and a comforter. The Spirit was constantly with you to help guide your conscience so you could live by faith as a follower of Jesus. This means that the very moment when Ananias and Sapphira first started conniving to deceive the church, the Holy Spirit would have started to nudge their conscience. That's what the Holy Spirit did for me when I wanted to try to deceive a sales clerk and get a steal on a lawnmower. The Holy Spirit was whispering to me, don't do it, Bruce, do what's right. 
And we can logically infer that the same thing is happening to this couple because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That's his ministry to us. And they obviously don't listen to him as Peter makes clear. They stifle the Spirit. They quench the Spirit. And they deliberately choose the wrong path. And this sin of deceit is a sin against them. It's a sin against the church. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit who lives within them. Now here's where things get really interesting. The Apostle Peter obviously wasn't present when Ananias and Sapphira sold the property. He wasn't sitting around during their closing, however they did closings in those days. And they didn't come in and report the sale price to the church. So how does Peter know that they're lying about the gift? Well, as we know, there are some critics of the Bible who love to explain away anything supernatural, so they claim that Peter knows because obviously somebody else in the church was in on the deal and they ratted out Ananias and Sapphira. Yet that takes a completely humanistic view of the story, and it discounts the power of God. And you see what Peter does here is fully in line with Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have a list of some of the supernatural spiritual gifts that God gives to believers at times through the Holy Spirit, and one of those gifts is called the discernment of spirits. The discernment of spirits. It's the God-given ability in a moment of special need for one person to be able to distinguish what spiritual force is motivating the actions of another person. So the best explanation for what happens here is that God momentarily empowers Peter with that special gift. And as a result, Peter's able to discern that Ananias is not listening to the Holy Spirit, but instead is listening to Satan, who is the great deceiver. That's Satan's power. That's his character. He is the great deceiver. Ananias is allowing himself to be influenced toward evil, and he's making no effort to resist. So God supernaturally equips Peter to discern not just the deceit, which there's no human way he could know, but the spirit of evil behind the deceit. And there's no human way that he could know that. This is the power of God at work to reveal the truth and take this deceit out of darkness and bring it into the light. And then incredibly, when Ananias' deceit is exposed, Peter confronts him, and boom, he drops dead. Wow. <laughs> we'll get back to that in a minute. <laughs> That's an incredible part of the story. So as Brad read, three hours after Ananias' body's carried out, Sapphira shows up, and Peter also confronts her, but it's a different kind of confrontation. And he says, did you really sell the land for X amount of dollars? And that means she's got a chance to tell the truth. But she doesn't. Instead, she confirms what her husband previously said. And once again, God works through Peter supernaturally. Peter's aware once again that she is 
quenching the Holy Spirit. And God also gives Peter in this moment the gift of prophecy. Because Peter basically says, you're going to die. They're ready to carry out your body. Boom, she hits the ground. Wow. So in response to their deceit, Ananias and Sapphira experience the dramatic justice of God. And while this is a hard story to read, it's the death of these two people that's the hardest part of the story for us to understand. But let's take a look at the last couple of parts of this story here. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And immediately she, Sapphira, fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So there's God's justice at work. But the culmination of this story, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, a word about semantics. Whenever we see God carry out punishment on people, we often describe it as an act of judgment. I think it's better to use the term justice because it reminds us that our God always acts in ways that are just. Our God is a good God. He is a holy and righteous God. And he is not capricious. He is not cavalier. He does what is right and what is appropriate in each and every circumstance, every time, all the time. So when we read things that are hard, we need to remind ourselves it's God's justice because he is just. Yet having said that, I think it's very reasonable for us to ask, why is God's justice so strong in this particular case? After all, we don't read about this thing commonly happening in the Bible. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read about people who are rebuked for their sins. Some of those sins are profound, but they don't pay with their lives. Jesus once even turned on Peter and accused him of listening to Satan, but Jesus didn't take Peter out. And as serious as lying is, we don't see people in the Bible routinely dropping dead when they've been caught in their deceit. So what's going on here? Well, when we read through the scriptures, it becomes clear that God responds to sin with particularly severe justice at any new point in his dealings with people. For example, God told the Israelites to never touch the Holy Ark of the Covenant. And then a man named Uzzah touched the Ark and he died. When the Israelites conquered Jericho, God said, do not keep any of the bounty of this city for yourselves. And a man named Achan ignored those instructions from God. He held on to some of the stuff, and God took his life. God seems to engage in dramatic acts of justice like this at key moments when his people are entering a new season, and they need to understand the seriousness of listening to God. And I believe that's what's happening here. The church of Jesus Christ is brand new. The leaders are new. The members are new. Following Jesus by faith is new. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is new. 
God's church at this moment is very young and very fragile. And oh, that's the kind of moment that Satan loves. I work with a lot of church planters who start churches from scratch. And it's not unusual to see Satan come in and stir things up and create controversy when a church is young. It's so much easier to destabilize a community when it's new. And at this moment here in Acts 5, it's not a church that's new, it's the church that's new. And Satan would like nothing more than to destroy the brand new church of Jesus Christ from within. And that's what he's trying to do here by getting his grip on Ananias and Sapphira. Thankfully, our God is sharper than Satan and he takes care of the problem. He equips Peter with supernatural insight to expose the deceit. And he demonstrates, I'm going to protect my church. Church, I got your back. Here's something else to consider. What might have happened if the lie of Ananias and Sapphira had not been uncovered? What would have been the ripple effect if these two prideful deceivers were falsely viewed as people of virtue, as people of of character? Oh, they easily could have moved into positions of influence and corrupted the church. So by first identifying their sin and then removing them, God is not just protecting his church, he's also sending a message. God wants his people to know that deceit is destructive. It's destructive to the people who try to deceive and it's destructive to those who are victims of the deceit. And yet one of Satan's great deceptions is trying to convince you and me that deception can be good. That deception can be useful. And he convinces us that lying will will gain us much and cost us little. Yet that's a lie. Lying usually gains us little and costs us much. Even if we don't die from telling a lie as this couple did, lying erodes our integrity. Lying makes us cynical. Lying hardens our hearts toward God and separates us from Him. Lying damages our souls. I can tell you that if I'd taken that lawnmower and pushed it through that line at Sears and the clerk had rung it up and I brought that thing home, I would have been momentarily ecstatic, but there would have been a wound in my heart. Because that's what deceit does. Every time we engage in deceit, we die a little bit inside. And if there's deceit within the church family, It tears down the very fabric of our life together as a community of faith striving to follow Jesus Christ. And that's why God takes such a strong stand against deceit and for honesty. In the book of Proverbs chapter 6, there's a list of what are called the seven deadly sins. And guess what? Lying shows up on that list twice. God doesn't like it when his people act 
with deceit. And here in this story, when the church is in its tender infancy and needs to be protected, our Heavenly Father makes that point abundantly clear. Now, to dampen our anxiety, in the age in which we live, I think the odds of you and I being struck dead for telling a lie are rather slim. <laughs> I don't think God's working like that today. But it doesn't mean we get to walk away from this and not take it seriously. God gave us this story so we would get the message and so that we would take his truth seriously. By the way, a little side note, the dramatic death of this husband and wife is another very supernatural event that some Bible critics try to explain away. I've read numerous commentators who say, oh, these, these two people, when they were confronted, they just dropped dead from fright. And I say to myself, well, how, how likely is that? Now, now, it's true that in a moment of shock, people can die, has happened, but what are the odds that both of them would drop dead immediately afterwards of Peter right in front of him in the same exact way? That just seems a little far-fetched. Plus, in the case of Sapphira, Peter prophesies her death. <laughs> he says it's going to happen, and it happens. So rather than try to explain all this away, I think it's important to try and understand it from God's perspective and discern what he wants us to learn from this story. And I think we have an insight at the end of the story because in response to all of this, verse 11 says that great fear seized the whole church. Well, I get that. I'd be a little bit afraid too. I'll bet you would. But let's think about all the reasons that the people in the church have to be full of holy fear. To be full of Fearful awe at who God is. They are full of fearful awe because they realize the destructive nature of deceit and what it can cost. It costs this couple their lives. The people respond with fearful awe because God miraculously equips Peter to see into the hearts of these people and to prophesy the death of Sapphira. And I think the people respond with fearful awe because this episode is a reminder that the church is not a club, it's not a social organization, it is the family of the living God and we represent Him in all of our dealings. God is saying, oh church, your life together is serious business. Our life together is serious business because it's God's business. And so because of God's justice, fear comes upon the whole church. And you know what? That statement in verse 11, that's the first time that the word church is used to describe the collective group of Christians. In other words, it's in this, the midst of this supernatural event that individual followers of Jesus understand that they are connected to one another in a special way. And they understand that they need to care for each other and watch out for each other. And they now understand in a very vivid way that God has their back. Because they are the church. The church of Jesus Christ. 
And so in summary, in this amazing story, Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they seek by deception to earn a reputation for being virtuous, sacrificial givers. They refuse to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to their consciences. And so they choose the wrong path. They lie to the church. And they lie to God. And God responds dramatically to protect his church and to teach the people that deceit and the church is serious business. And whether we're tempted to lie or tempted to sin in some other way, one of the lessons for us to grasp this morning is the importance of listening to the Holy Spirit. It's a lesson I learned many years ago in a Sears store. It's a lesson that Ananias and Sapphira tragically missed. But on a regular basis, you and I face moments when we have to make important decisions. And in those moments, let's not quench the Holy Spirit. Let's take time to listen to what the Spirit is whispering to our conscience. And let's allow the Holy Spirit who lives within each of us as followers of Jesus, let's allow Him to shape our character and form our character so that in critical moments we will not make the mistake this couple did, but that in critical moments we will choose the right path. The path of honesty and the path of honoring God. Please pray with me. Father, this story is a difficult one, but it does remind us that our life together is serious business. And it reminds us that we can be so very thankful that you care for your church. We're deeply grateful that you watch over us and you protect us. And so, Father, may we respond like the church in Acts. May we respond to you always with holy, fearful awe and not take you and your power for granted. May we grow in our ability to trust you and to listen to the voice of, of your spirit so that we'll turn away from temptation and do what is right. And through the power of the spirit who lives within us, may we always, always live as men and women of character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.